Hi, and thanks for listening to A Little More Conversation. I'm Ben O'Hara Byrne. Today, with Orthodox Easter this past weekend, we look into why Russia's Orthodox Church continues to be such an ardent supporter of Vladimir Putin's and his war in Ukraine. We speak to the author of a new report that details how inflation is driving down real wages for many Canadians over the course of the pandemic. We dig into Elon Musk's successful bid to buy Twitter, both the business case and the potential impact that his ownership will have on the platform and its many users. But first, Ottawa has announced an independent inquiry will review the invocation of the Emergencies Act by the federal government last winter and study how the so-called Freedom Convoy escalated into a Canadian crisis in early 2022. What will it attempt to answer? Will it be transparent enough? We'll try to answer those questions. Let's start tonight, though, in Ottawa, where the Prime Minister announced today that there will be an independent inquiry to review the invocation of the Emergencies Act over the winter by the federal government and to study how the so-called Freedom Convoy escalated into a Canadian crisis earlier this year. The Emergencies Act was, of course, used for 10 days, beginning on February 14th, in response to those prolonged anti-pandemic restriction protests, those anti-government protests and blockades in Ottawa and at border crossings. The new Public Order Emergency Commission will be headed by Ontario Appeal Court Justice Paul Rouleau. Uh, and the Prime Minister says he brings 20 years of experience. He's expected to report no later than next February the 20th. Today, though, the Federal Minister of Emergency Preparedness would not say if the government will waive cabinet confidentiality for the inquiry. Conservative MPs pressed Bill Blair on that today in question period. Mr. Speaker, that inquiry will be useless unless they waive cabinet confidence and allow Canadians to know the whole story. The commissioner of, the, of, of this inquiry will have very broad authorities, the ability to compel witnesses and to compel the production of documents, subject as always to lawful uh, privileges to, of evidence that may exist, but he'll, he'll have the ability to call the evidence required, and we have great confidence in Justice Rouleau. The Federal Minister of Emergency Preparedness, Bill Blair, there. So just how transparent will this inquiry be? What crucial questions will it attempt to answer? Joining me now is Stephanie Carvin, Associate Professor of International Relations at the Norman Patterson School of International Affairs at Carleton University in Ottawa. Stephanie, always great to have you on the show. How have you been? Oh, you know, just hanging in. <laughs> um, looks like there's going to be another convoy. So uh, I don't know if I should be stockpiling, but, you know. We'll, I was going to ask you we'll, about, we'll yeah, about that. I was going to ask <laughs> yeah. you about about roll, rolling thunder in 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 a bit. But tell me a bit oh, about yeah. your reaction to the to the inquiry today, and just sort of is it what you were hoping to see in terms of how it's set up? Will it be providing the kind of answers you were hoping to still learn? Well, I mean, look, it, 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 it didn't have a choice. Like, I mean, the legislation requires them to set up this inquiry, so so that's an important thing too. I mean, look, it's positive in the sense that there's a broad mandate. Um, including um, the opportunity to, to talk about provinces um, if, if they request, if they want. Um, they can make uh, recommendations on reforms to the Emergencies Act. Remember, we've never actually used it before. So I mean, a lot of people think of the War Measures Act, but that, that legislation is long gone. Um, this, is, this is new legislation, which we've never used before. And having tried it out, you know, do we need to you know, move some of the furniture around, as it were? Um, but, there, you know, there's things missing. I mean, um, it, it's been clear that the... You know, the minister, ministers, I guess, Bill Blair and, and Mendocino have um, said that uh, there will be uh, classified information provided to the inquiry. But um, the language of that is missing in the actual order which sets up the inquiry. So I think that's 
important. I do believe the cap. I, I actually agree with the conservatives on cabinet confidence. It absolutely needs to uh, see the cabinet confidence. I mean, this isn't like, you know, just your average ordinary inquiry, if such a thing can be said. This was, um, you know, this was the National Security Super Bowl, I kept calling it when it, when it was happening right. at the time. And, um, you know, cabinet confidence is the highest, strictest, uh, you know, most like there's most restrictions around that information um, relative pretty much to anything else we have. And but I, I just think if you're going to invoke the Emergencies Act, you have to put all your cards on the table. Right. You can't hold back. And it, 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 the on, like, to me, the legislation makes it clear. The onus is on the government to demonstrate why the Emergencies Act was necessary. And I think as a result, it would benefit them and Canada in the long run to make sure that those cabinet confidences are available. Yeah, absolutely. Because I think one of the things that became very clear today is there's going to be a lot of examining sort of who the protesters were, where the money was coming from, the role of disinformation. But there didn't seem to be a whole lot about how the government came to consider this a national security threat worthy of the Emergencies Act. Yeah. And just to, you know, as a reminder to everybody, I mean, it's not just like you don't just kind of hold your finger up to the wind and see which way it's blowing and then decide. I mean, the Emergencies Act is actually very clear. It's a very high threshold. It's tied actually to the CSIS Act, right? The Canadian Security Intelligence Service Act. So there are there are spies, right? Domestic Security Service. And um, they have the uh, threats to the security of Canada uh, laid out in Section 2, which is uh, violent extremism, espionage, um, clandestine foreign interference, and subversion. So they have to tie it to one of those things um, in their arguments, right, when, when making this case. So um, a lot of my friends, I mean, I'm, I'm actually a little bit more willing than some of my friends to give the government the benefit of the doubt here, right? I don't think we have seen all the intelligence. Um, I don't know. And if you kind of look at some of the threats um, and some of the actors, who, some of whom were arrested in Coots, Alberta, I mean, these were some pretty serious folks who were doing some pretty serious things uh, across the country, not just in one area. I think there is, there is a reasonable argument here, um, but you know, it, a lot of my friends remain skeptical, and like I said, and I'm and I'm sympathetic to that. Let's just see what's out there. How did they come to the conclusion that yeah, this this, this did meet the threshold of one of those four threats that that's in the CSIS Act? The timeline's pretty tight, though. I mean, I, I realize it has to be done that way, but uh, that's not a lot of time to, to dig into these very substantial questions, I think, that were raised both by the protests themselves and by the, the Emergencies Act. Yeah, and that's, that's going to be the key thing. I mean, to me, I, in some ways, I just think that the convoy raised so many questions that are out there um, about not just, you know, I mean, there's, there's, I mean, to me, the convoy suggests that we need to have some kind of inquiry into the nature of policing in Canada, right? Um, how did this go so badly wrong? Um, why is it that, you know, this, you know, the, the people who were in the convoy, it's not like they were hiding their intentions. It's not like they sat there and said, oh, yeah, we're just going to go to Ottawa and, and plant some flowers, et cetera, et cetera. They, it was, you know, we called it the Freedom Convoy, but the other name for it was Operation Bear Hug. In other words, they were coming to basically squeeze Ottawa until it capitulated. Um, and so it's like, I don't understand why this, you know, if I'm, you know, at, at the time, you know, I'm a lone uh, professor in my parents' basement, um, you know, <laughs> looking at what's going on. 
seeing what's happening and thinking, you know, this looks really bad. Like, why why didn't the police come to that conclusion? And why did they were they unable to, to do something about this? And, you know, I, I just think that really we need to have some kind of, you know, the fact that no like level of government seems to have been able to handle this. Uh, just it blows my mind. And so, you know, I would hope that, you know, even though there is this inquiry, that there will be other inquiries that can maybe, you know, hope springs internal. I mean, I don't think Canadians are, get very excited about having inquiries, but I just think that there's so many questions that remain unanswered about this whole incident. Something that, you know, and the legacy of which continues. We just talked about Operation Rolling Thunder right. uh, coming to make our lives heck again. Um, you know, this is this is something that's going to be ongoing. So, um, you know, I'm looking forward to this inquiry. I just with relate as it relates to the to the Emergencies Act. But are there other questions that I think at the very least Parliament should be considering? Yes. And Rolling Thunder, it looks like police in Ottawa I only have about 30 seconds. But it looks like police in Ottawa are, are preparing differently for this one. Yeah, I think they <laughs> got the message finally. Um, you know, it, what, what concerns me is, is listening to the news just before I went on mm-hmm. is that they are saying that, you know, that they're, they're, they'll cause trouble if they don't get their way. So um, it'll be interesting to see how they will change their approach uh, to this convoy. I know the people of Ottawa are just kind of sick of all of this and um, the ingredients that are, are for a messy situation are there. But um, let's let's just hope some lessons are learned and, and hope for the best. Stephanie Carvin, as always, thank you for your time. Have a great night. I hope so, if not a great weekend. Well, yesterday was Orthodox Easter. Orthodox Christianity is, of course, the dominant religion in both Russia and Ukraine. Uh, But Russia's invasion of Ukraine is being felt throughout the church as well. Vladimir Putin attended an Easter service led by Patriarch Kirill, the top Russian Orthodox bishop and a close ally of his. Kirill has also been a vocal supporter of Russia's invasion of Ukraine. So how important is that support? And why would the church so aggressively back an illegal war on a country where it has parishioners, or did? With more on that, I'm joined by Scott Kenworthy. He's a professor of comparative religion at Miami University in Ohio and with the Havinghurst Center for Russian and Post-Soviet Studies. Scott, thank you so much for your time tonight. Thank you for having me on. So for, for listeners who might not be entirely familiar with this schism, um, this would have been a fairly fraught Easter again for the Orthodox Church, specifically uh, with the Russian Orthodox Church. Right, uh, very much so, um, because there are divisions in Ukraine between the Autocephalous Church and the church that's still under Moscow. Um, and I think it was probably particularly fraught for the church that's uh, still under the Moscow Patriarchate because many of the clergy, at least on the ground, not necessarily, some of the bishops have been openly critical of the war, but others are trying to maintain some kind of silence. But there's a, a movement among many priests who still belong to the Moscow Patriarchate, but some 400 have signed a petition Um, to have Patriarch Kirill judged for his support for the war by the kind of universal Orthodox Church. For those who haven't followed it particularly closely, uh, it it feels like uh, the Russian Orthodox Church, or Kirill specifically, has been very supportive of Putin since forever. But, But how did this all come about, and just how supportive has the Church been for Putin and his war? So the the um 
close alliance uh, between the church and the state did really come about because of patriarchal. So, of course, in the Soviet period, the church was repressed by the Soviet government, um, intensely persecuted in, in before World War II and then after World War II, closely controlled, let's say. And then when the church was reviving after the collapse of the Soviet Union in the 1990s and into the 2000s, the patriarch then, Alexei II, um, tried to cooperate with the government, but the, the relations were not overly close. Uh, but once um, Kirill became patriarch in 2009, he succeeded in securing, uh, actually it was President Medvedev at the time, um, a lot of things the church had wanted in terms of reintroducing religious instruction in the public schools, reintroducing chaplains in the military, um, the state uh, giving back properties uh, to the church that the Soviet state had confiscated, things like this. But the real turning point um, was 10 years ago in 2012, when uh, President Putin was facing the most serious threat to his presidency of the entire time, when there were massive uh, protests against him uh, in the winter of 2011-2012. And uh, at that moment, in order to kind of polarize against the opposition, uh, President Putin, well, then he was running for president, he was running for his third term, Putin uh, embraced some elements uh, that were part of the church's narrative, this kind of culture wars, uh, Russia represents true traditional Christian values against the West, which has become decadent and corrupt and abandoned Christian values by going for uh, gay rights and things like this. And these were ideas that Kirill had been developing already for some years, but Putin really embraced them in a new way uh, to help him ally the opposition with those alien Western values that were threatening to traditional Russian values. So if you're in support of the church and support of Russia, you're a good Russian patriot, then you have to vote for Putin against the opposition. And so at that moment in 2012, uh, Patriarch Kirill by having this support from Putin, you could say, then reciprocated that support and gave his support completely uh, to Putin. And that has not wavered uh, since 2012. Even the moment when Russia annexed, annexed Crimea and the conflict in the Donbass started, um, this was not exactly something that Kirill probably wanted because it threatened to alienate the church in Ukraine, which still was a huge part, still is a huge part of the Moscow Patriarchate. So he was quite silent in 2014, um, but uh, in more recent years has really just completely supported um, Putin's line on things. How important is it then for Putin to have this support? Yeah, that's a very good question. Um, in the post-Soviet period, the church was considered one of the most trusted institutions by ordinary Russians, the, the army being another one. Um, and that support seems to have waned, or confidence in the church has maybe waned a bit in, over the years. And I think there's, there's a lot of Russians who are not necessarily all that keen on Patriarch Kirill in particular. 
But at the same time, it's important for uh, President Putin to make sure that the church is reinforcing his narrative uh, because uh, the kind of propaganda and Russian narrative is repeated in all the media, uh, which is heavily state controlled. Uh, and it's um, very powerful and very persuasive in convincing Russians that what Russia is doing is right and also giving them limited information about what's actually happening. And so uh, as part of that overall package, it's definitely important that the, the church also stay on message, as it were. And what does the church get out of this? Because as you mentioned in, in the article that you wrote on this, um, the church does risk, in this sense, Moscow risks losing its its parishioners or its followers in, in Ukraine over this, because clearly taking a very firm stance on the justification for the war flies in the face of all those who are in the country at the receiving end of it, you'd think. Yeah, I think it's going to be catastrophic for the church uh, in the long run. Um, but I think that the gains maybe that Patriarch Kirill felt like uh, he got from the alliance with, with Putin came earlier, right, from this sort of Putin pushed the church in front and center as an aspect of Russian identity and patriotism and so on. And Kirill presumably believed that this was a way to ensure the church's prominence and influence on society. Uh, and so Kit couldn't back away from it uh, when this all started taking place. But now, uh, internationally, of course, um, Patriarch Kirill is... Uh, highly criticized and even despised in many quarters or completely delegitimized. And especially among his flock in Ukraine, it's just impossible to imagine how the church that still is subordinate to Moscow will um, remain in that situation, at least in places that aren't controlled by, <laughs> by Russia. So how is that schism manifesting itself so far? I, I, because there are a few different elements to this schism that are, that, are, that are happening because of, not just because of this war, but because of, uh, of, of support for Putin more broadly. Well, in some ways, uh, it's perhaps too soon to tell. So ever since 2014, of course, there, there has been mounting criticism uh, of the Russian Orthodox Church's tacit support, let's say, um, of what Russia was doing in annexing Crimea and the conflict in Donbass, uh, which finally led to um, the ecumenical patriarch Bartholomew of Constantinople intervening uh, on the request of then President, Ukrainian President Poroshenko mm -hmm. to grant autocephaly, which is the technical term for basically full church independence, to the Ukrainian Orthodox Church, uh, but the still probably the majority of parishes, and it's hard to tell how many of the parishioners, but a very large portion of them remained under Moscow. So you ended up with the two churches uh, in Ukraine. And uh, certainly since in the past two months, um, probably many um, parishioners have just voted with their feet, as it were, and left churches belonging to the Moscow Patriarchate and gone over to the churches that are, you know, that belong to the Anasopolis church. But we don't really know exactly. I mean, I've seen some of my um, social media contacts and colleagues 
expressing real dismay, who still were part of the, whose allegiance had been to the church in Moscow, expressing real dismay and, and uncertainty about what to do, feeling like they can't continue to belong to a church that is subordinate to Patriarch Kirill, um, but not quite sure how to proceed just yet. And the question will be what happens with the, the Ukrainian churches and, and bishops and so on, who are still subordinate to Moscow at this point, whether they hold their own kind of council and and merge with the autocephalous church. But unfortunately, there's a lot of bad blood between them that happened when uh, the autocephaly was granted in 2019. So that's a little tricky to envision. So where we'll go exactly is, is uh, yet uncertain. Scott Kenworthy, uh, a fascinating topic. Thank you so much for your insight tonight. I appreciate it. Thank you for having me on, Ben. Our next story, it's, it's basic math, really. The rate of inflation is higher than any average wage increase you're getting. So essentially, you're being paid less for the work that you do. How much less? Who is getting hurt the most? That's what my next guest set to find out in a new study called Pressure Cooker, Declining Real Wages and Rising Inflation in Canada During the Pandemic. The report looks at real wage growth and rising inflation over the past two years and finds that wages for a majority of us Canadian workers have not increased at the same rate as inflation. In particular, many public sector sector workers uh, who have faced salary freezes from provincial governments are falling behind. Well, joining me now is David McDonald. He's a senior economist with the Canadian Centre for Policy Alternatives and author of the report, Pressure Cooker. David, thank you so much for your time tonight. Sure thing. Thanks for having me. I guess the the title of this of the of the research says it all, really, which is you know pressure cooker. Obviously, I think. Canadians are feeling the pressure, but just how wages are declining because they're basically being offset by rising inflation. What did you set out to find and and what was the result? Yeah, I mean, it's a real simple test was to say whether wages, hourly wages are keeping pace with inflation. Uh, If they are, in which sectors, for which types of workers, and if they're not, uh, why aren't they? And so broadly, I mean, the conclusion is that uh, two thirds of all workers took a pandemic pay cut since 2020. It's not because their pay itself went down, but because the price of the goods that they buy went up much faster than the rate of increase in their wages. Where were you seeing that uh, most acutely? Well, there's certainly winners and losers. Um, In terms of uh, workers who got a job during the pandemic, um, they have met or exceeded inflation, particularly if they got a job in the fall, um, where we saw a bit of a rehiring boom. Most workers, though, actually held a job throughout the entire pandemic, had one prior to the pandemic, and they're the ones that are left way behind. In terms of the winners and losers by industry, there are certainly winners, and they're very pandemic winners, as it were. Uh, the biggest winners are uh, in the uh, information, culture, and recreation industry. This is where a lot of IT practice professionals are. And so in the huge shift of working from home, it's had to be facilitated by someone and it was facilitated by those IT professionals making that all happen, making connections work. Um, the manufacturing of non-durables, particularly food and beverages, as well as wholesale trade, uh, also saw uh, higher than inflation uh, wage gains. You know, think of wholesale trade as the middle of the supply chain between retailers and the and the producers. Uh, and so sorting out some of those difficulties uh, meant they needed more workers. And uh, so wages went up there. And the final big winning category is real estate agents, who particularly in the fall of 2021 saw huge increases in their pay, 14% a year um, since, uh, since uh, 2020. And this is in large part due to the uh, very high real estate prices. 
Now, there are much more losers than winners, unfortunately. I mean, the worst of the bunch were uh, workers in the manufacturing of durables, these things like cars, the parts for cars. Um, they uh, basically are seeing a 2% a year wage cut over the course of the pandemic. Um, and this is due to the chip shortage. So there were big plant shutdowns. Uh, and so there just wasn't the demand for workers. And so you didn't see any wage pressure there. Uh, you actually see uh, the big uh, public sector industries also among the biggest losers. Uh, this is education services. So this is uh, childcare workers and teachers, as well as healthcare industries. So this is nurses, PSWs, that sort of thing. Um, these folks are seeing wage gains well below the rate of inflation. Um, the only uptick in those wage categories uh, is for people hired in the fall. And uh, it's really, really for all the wrong reasons, which is it, these are people who are, are backfilling because people are sick uh, or they are burned out. And so, uh, and there's a big call for the workers in these categories. And so we are seeing some wage pressure there. Um, but if you were in nursing in particular, there's been essentially no difference whether you're hired in the fall, you know, at the start of the pandemic, or you're, uh, you know, you've been in your position for more than two years. Uh, wage gains on average there have only been 2% uh, a year, whereas inflation has been three and a half. So, it, you know, for the people that, really hit hardest from this just from a health perspective they're just most exposed physically to the pandemic uh, are among people who have seen the worst increases in in wages and they're just not being offset by the additional uh you know personal danger that they've undertaken during the pandemic david what are we seeing i mean just in terms of real numbers just how much worse off are most people now in terms of how much money they're taking home and how much they need to spend on things that they need to buy how much worse yeah. off are, are we yeah, so real wages have gone down about 1% a year uh, once we adjust for inflation. So wages uh, over the course of the pandemic went up 2.5% roughly. Inflation went up 3.5% over the last two years. Um, and so you know, workers on average are a point behind. Uh, when we look at you know at manufacturing, I mean, they've taken a 2% a year pay cut. You know, if you're a uh, teacher, childcare here, you know, you're taking about a 2% pay cut every year. Uh, healthcare is slightly better, 1.5% pay cut. Um, but you know, it's, it's substantial when you see the big increases, uh, on the one side of prices, but you don't see it, uh, in your paycheck in terms of, uh, increased pay. It, it, this goes without saying, but this will have an impact that will be felt throughout the economy because if people spend, have less to spend, they spend less, save less. Um, and, and the impacts of that can be far reaching. Did you look into that at all as to what the consequences of this sort of declining wage strength can be? Well, and this is the issue for workers is that, is that, uh, yeah, inflation is up and, and they're not, they're, they're not keeping pace. Um, I think that one of the things it does speak to, particularly the very tight labor market at present, uh, where you've got unemployment hitting historic lows, is that particularly for workers who've been in the same job over the course of uh, the pandemic, they likely have a bit of power in their pocket that they have seen these big increases in inflation, particularly over the course of the fall and, and early winter. And this may well continue for some time, given uh, what's happening in Ukraine and high gas prices. Uh, and so my hope is that... Uh, that these workers who stuck around their jobs over the course of the pandemic now potentially gain, you know, a bit more leverage uh, in their workplaces to try to drive up their own pay. Often in uh, academic economic circles, uh, workers are blamed for inflation. You know that they are the ones sort of pushing for wage increases and therefore driving up the price of goods. Uh, that is certainly not the case this time around. Uh, you know, workers are not pushing up wages. If anything, you know, they're not in the driver's seat here in terms of wages. There. 
they're in the passenger seat, maybe they're they're in the back seat. Uh, they aren't the ones driving inflation here. Inflation's being driven by something else. Uh, one of the things that was interesting in, in your research as well is that we talked a lot about the great resignation, but according to your data, uh, there wasn't really a great resignation in this country, it didn't seem. No, there isn't. I mean, this is very much an American trend. Uh, and so we just sort of assume that everything in the U.S. is happening here. Um, but the, uh, you know, the ratio of the turnover, the voluntary turnover in the workforce has remained uh, actually slightly below where it was pre-pandemic, which means that people are not leaving their jobs in record numbers uh, by any stretch. Um, and so, you know, to some degree, it may be that the tight labor market will encourage more of that job shifting. That's often a way that people can increase wages. And certainly when we look at the data of the people hired in the fall, uh, you know, s- since the fall, the wage gains there have been larger. Now, people who were hired in the fall, on average, will tend to have lower wages because they have very little tenure and enough you know, under five months tenure. And so if you've got less tenure, you're, you know, you're, you're in general going to be paid less. Um, but the wage gains there have been more substantial. So, um, you know, it may, it, it, you know, it may lead to more people switching jobs. Uh, we haven't seen that yet in the Canadian data, but that's very much an, an American experience. I mean, the other thing that happened during the pandemic in Canada was that the hourly wage that you made the pandemic was highly related to how likely it was you're going to lose your job. Uh, and so half of uh, all the making at or near minimum lost their jobs or the majority of their hours in the first couple months of the pandemic. And so I was interested as well to see in this report whether there was any silver lining here, whether lower wagers were likely to see a raise, particularly if they got rehired in the fall. I mean, there was lots of uh, debate in the, the food and accommodation industry that there were leverages and they couldn't curse. Uh, unfortunately, there seems to be no relationship between hourly wage rates and who got a raise over the course of the pandemic. So there isn't really a silver lining here for all those low-wage workers in food and accommodation that lost their jobs at the start of the pandemic. I'm speaking with David McDonald, the senior economist, a senior economist at the Canadian Centre for Policy Alternatives and the author of Pressure Cooker, Declining Real Wages and Rising Inflation in Canada During the Pandemic. The title says it all. We're talking about what's happened to people's wages when inflation outpaces any raise that you may, you may be getting and the broader impact on the economy, as well as winners and losers over the course of the pandemic. Who has come out in front? Many more have come out behind. And what does that mean for the economy? What does that mean for labor uh, negotiations going forward? We'll touch more on that after this. I'm speaking with David McDonald, senior economist at the Canadian Centre for Policy Alternatives and the author of Pressure Cooker, Declining Real Wages and Rising Inflation in Canada During the Pandemic, a look into what's happened to a lot of people's wages. And I think we all know this anecdotally. Uh, the more inflation rises and your, and your wages don't keep pace, uh, the less money you have to spend or the more expensive life gets. Um, when you were looking at some of the impact that this could have, and we're seeing it in labor negotiations among government uh, labor unions these days, it sounds like we may start to head towards some side, some sort of collision between those who sign the paychecks and those who receive the salaries, uh, specifically in the public sector in the, in the not too distant future. Yeah, I mean, what's interesting in the public sector, particularly at the provincial level, where a lot of these workers are employed through uh, teachers and healthcare workers, these are provincial employees in essence. Um, you know, it's heavily unionized environment. And so 2% a year is generally what was targeted pre-pandemic. And that's what you'd experience. It's what you'd expect in terms of inflation. And so to keep pace, you'd want about a 2% a year increase. Uh, and in some provinces, that that is uh, broadly what uh, workers have been getting from recently signed collective agreements. So, 
BC and Quebec in particular, I mean, very close to 2%. But many of the other big provinces, uh, Alberta and Ontario, have been actively attempting to drive down wages uh, for healthcare workers and education workers, um, capping wages to be sure. Uh, this was happening pre-pandemic, but it was also happening during the pandemic with attempts to see no wage increases in, in key categories like on the healthcare side. Um, and so, we, you know, in those that, you know, the, the, the average wage increase in collective bargaining in Alberta was just over 0% uh, over the last uh, three or four years, which means that, you know, in real terms, uh, those workers as part of those agreements would be seeing 3% a year wage cuts in essence. Um, now, you know, one, one of the challenges, of course, is that with all of these workers either off sick or burning out, there's a huge demand for teachers, childcare workers, especially with a new childcare plan, uh, and healthcare workers. Uh, you know, nurses have not been seeing pay increases anywhere near the rate of inflation, despite being on the front lines of the pandemic. Uh, doesn't matter whether you're hired in the fall, the start of the pandemic, prior to the pandemic, pay increases have been about 2% a year across the board. Uh, the only real gains in healthcare have been on the lab tech side. Uh, and technical occupations, which tends to be more private sector in any event. Um, and so I think that, you know, yes, there's there's going to be higher wage demands to be sure to try to keep up to inflation. But to some degree, you know, you, you also need higher wages to encourage people to join these professions. I mean, there's a real need for more workers, uh, you know, in long-term care facilities uh, when we're talking about uh, PS, uh, personal support workers, PSWs, uh, when it comes to to try to clear backlogs for surgery when it comes to teachers who are chronically now off sick and experiencing burnout. Uh, you know, it, it's going to be very difficult to fill these positions um, without some commitment to higher wages. And so whether governments like it or not, provincial governments like it or not, if they want these services to be maintained at anywhere near pre-pandemic levels, uh, wages are going to have to increase there. I mean, the upside of this, of course, is that provincial governments are actually flush with cash. And so initially at the start of the pandemic, there were real doomsday scenarios in terms of the deficits that would be seen uh, coming through the pandemic. Those were revised away pretty quickly. Uh, and now we're seeing surpluses in six of 10 provinces, you know, this year, next year, just a huge turnaround in provincial in the provincial books. So the provinces are actually well positioned to uh, increase wages, increase employment in some of these key sectors. Uh, like healthcare, like long-term care, like education, uh, that have really, uh, you know, those workers who've really taken a beating over the course of this pandemic. There is a bit of a paradox, though, I guess, in your study, if we're not moving, so if people aren't resigning to go find more money where they can find it from someone who wants their skills, uh, there is a bit of a vicious circle where if you're, if you stay in one place, uh, you know, the old paradigm that, you know, your employer is not going to pay you more to do what you already do. Uh, it seems like, you know, there might have to be movement somewhere or this is going to persist. Certainly in the collective bargaining uh, arena where you've got a lot of unionization and healthcare education, I mean, you can bargain for higher wages. But outside of that, where, you know, the private sector where there's just much lower unionization rates, you can't. And so then it's on an individual basis. You go to your boss and saying, look, you know, this 1% pay increase isn't keeping pace with the 3.5% inflation that we've seen since the start of the pandemic. I want to raise. Uh, and maybe your boss says no. Or <laughs> maybe your boss says, okay, we're going to give you 1.5% a year. Um, that is much more challenging. And, and so where you don't see a lot of unionization, it's much harder to, to bargain collectively and, and ask in a collective way for increases in wages that are anywhere near inflation. And so often job switching is one of the obvious ways that you can increase your wages. Uh, you know, that's 
often something that employees don't want to do. Workers don't necessarily want to do going to a new job that may be better, maybe worse. I mean, you might get higher pay, but you've got a worse boss. Uh, and so, uh, but unfortunately that, that is uh, often what you have to do to get, to get pay increases. Now on the plus side, uh, unemployment rates are at historic lows. I mean, we haven't seen unemployment rates this low, even pre-pandemic. And so there's a, there's a lot of pressure in the labor market. Unfortunately, in part, in part due to COVID-19, people continue to be sick, uh, continue to be off work, and employers need to hire even more people uh, to cover the same amount of services they might have been providing pre-pandemic. And so there's a lot of pressure to get people into their workplaces, uh, to hire new workers, and hopefully that starts to result in wage increases. We certainly haven't seen it particularly for longer term employees yet, although we have seen it for employees newly hired in the fall. And so that might be the start of some benefit to, to workers, you know, that they might get somewhere near the inflation rate. I mean, the challenge is now that, that you know, workers who've been in their, their jobs for more than two years, who've gone through the, this pandemic period, you know, in total now, they're almost seven, you know, they're, well, once, once you adjust for the, for, for their own wage, wage increases, you know, they're, they're maybe four points, four percentage points lower in terms of pay than they used to be. I mean, it's pretty tough to keep up with growing inflation plus another 4% on top. And so we may well find that a lot of workers just take a one-time hit in pay and, and never recover. Like they, they never get back up, catch back up, even with inflation, unfortunately. David McDonald, thank you so much for your time tonight. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Well, you can call Elon Musk because it's a done deal. The world's richest man is now the owner of one of the world's most influential social media spaces, Twitter. The board accepted his offer today uh, in a unanimous vote. So the outspoken CEO of Tesla has reached an agreement to buy Twitter for approximately $44 billion. That's a lot of money. To talk more about the business side of all this, Brett Chang is co-host of the Peak Daily Podcast, bringing you the top Canadian and global business stories every morning in under 10 minutes. Brett, thank you so much for being here. Thanks for having me on, Ben. Big day. I mean, I was speaking to someone a few weeks ago who was like, this is a done deal. They can't turn down the money. It's too good. The offer's too good. They won't find anyone else to do it. But uh, are you surprised that it went through this quickly and surprised at at, uh, the fact that he sealed the deal? I think a lot of people are surprised. You have to remember that when Elon Musk first entered Twitter, he just became the largest shareholder. So he bought 9% of the company, and then it looked like he was going to work with Twitter to make it better. He joined the board, and then he left the board, made this offer, but he didn't have all the money together. Now he's gotten the money together. Obviously, the deal is done, and it just happened so quickly that I think many are still shocked by it. It's an awful lot of money. I mean, he keeps talking about wanting to sort of do this for free speech and so on, but with $44 billion, you have to think there must be some way to make some money at this thing, because Twitter over time hasn't been particularly lucrative, has it? No, it hasn't. And that's a very expensive toy for him to play around with. So we have to hope that there's some type of business fundamentals to this deal. But yeah, you know, I think he sees a lot of potential in Twitter. Uh, shareholders have always felt that Twitter has been undervalued or at least have has underperformed relative to their comparables in the space, like Facebook and uh, and Snapchat and TikTok. And so there, there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of potential for the platform. It just it's going to take someone to unleash that. What do you think? I mean, he's got so many other projects on the go right now. Do you think he can devote enough time to to Twitter to actually turn it around? I mean, what it sounds like quite the challenge he's laid out for himself here. I think he's got some core principles in mind for the direction that he wants the company to go. Free speech, obviously, being at the core of that. Now, in terms of the actual execution, he'll likely hire a CEO who will take those values and actually turn them into 
uh, and actually apply them to the business. So who that CEO is is going to be a, a huge question that we'll have to keep an eye on. But really, for Twitter, it's going to be a culture shift. Elon Musk is known for being a hard-driving CEO at SpaceX and Tesla, and he's hoping to do the same at Twitter, and he's hoping that ultimately improves the performance of the company. I imagine that could have some repercussions on the company itself. I imagine, you know, I think someone we spoke to a few weeks ago said, you know, they're going to be putting putting away the ping-pong tables now that Elon's coming in, right? Well, well, that's right. There's all these stories of, you know, he would see a line of SpaceX employees at the coffee shop and he would ask them what they're all doing there waiting when they could be working. It's that type of culture he's going to apply here. Now, will it work? It's worked for Tesla and SpaceX, clearly, and it's hard to say or it's hard to see why not. It wouldn't work for Twitter. Certainly a good day if you're a Twitter shareholder. Well, it's a good day for Twitter shareholder. You know, it hasn't hit this price. So he bought it at $50, at $54.20 per share, which it hasn't been at that price since the big run-up in the in the markets in 2021. Uh, and so Twitter, like I said, has always been seen as an underperforming stock. And so for uh, for shareholders, it's nice that they get to have a bit of a premium on it. So what happens now? I mean, what kind of repercussions does this have through the social media world now that this much amount of money has been paid for Twitter? Do you see it having any knock-on effects anywhere else? You know, there's been this constant debate about which direction social media platforms should go. Some people believe that with the threat of disinformation and hate speech, that they must be heavily censored and policed, while others, like Elon Musk, believe that they should be a beacon for free speech, an environment where you can say what you want and it's up to the users to decide what they deem to be correct and not. And what you're seeing now is that divergence starting to happen in real time. And so it'll be really interesting to see how other platforms respond to this because they're going to have to pick a lane whether they like it or not. And this Elon Musk Twitter acquisition is really pushing, accelerating that trend. So what happens now? What happens now? The, the deal is obviously agreed, but there's still some hurdles here, a few here and there. Yeah, look, there's definitely some hurdles. Uh, the first being he actually has to take control of the company and really start to figure out what his vision for it is and then find somebody who can execute on that vision. The fun thing about this all is that Elon Musk is a pretty uh, active tweeter himself. And so yeah. you can see through his tweets where he wants to take the company. And he was talking just for the past few days about how he wants to get rid of the bots and he wants to create an identification system where people will have to verify their identity before they can start using the platform. So it's kind of fun to see all this happen in motion, and you can do it all just by looking at his Twitter feed. Brett Chang, thank you so much for your insight on this. Uh, certainly an exciting day in the world of business and the world of tech. I look forward to hearing more about it on the Peak Daily Podcast. Thanks, Ben. And well, from uh, rotary technology, from old technology to something all oh, very new, we're talking the business side, or we talked about the business side of Elon Musk's takeover of Twitter in the last half hour. Now let's look what it means for the platform itself. How could it change? Musk is already making his plans known on Twitter, of course, and he's made his feelings about what he doesn't like about Twitter pretty clear for ages now. In what else but a tweet right after the announcement that Elon Musk will buy the platform for $44 billion, Musk tweeted that free speech is a bedrock of democracy. He says he wants to open it up, make the algorithms open source, defeat spam bots, and he wants all humans to be authenticated on Twitter. He says Twitter has tremendous potential and that he looks forward to working with the company to unlock it. That was Mike Hempen uh, reporting there. Well, with more on this... Technology analyst and journalist Carmi Levy joins me now. Uh, Carmi, thanks so much for your time tonight. This is a big day. 
a huge day in history. I think uh, we all knew that it was coming. I mean, for the last month, we were sort of marching slowly toward it. Uh, you know, two steps forward, one step back. But I think once the board decided that, oh, he has the money now, so we're going to switch from fighting him to negotiating with him, I think we knew it was pretty close to a done deal. And here we are, no longer, here or soon are. to be, no longer a publicly traded company. It all happened. It all felt like it happened very quickly. We did interview someone a few weeks ago who said it's a done deal. The money's too good. There's no one else out there who's going to offer as much, and he's going to get the money together. It's going to happen. The question was, why? Why would he want to buy Twitter? Um, <laughs> but from a platform, I mean, I, he uses it. I mean, he, the old saying, he liked it so much he bought the company, right? Yeah, it's uh, it's you know he's he's the world's richest man. He's worth, depending on the day, between 260 and $270 billion. And so, you know, he and he likes a big megaphone. He's got 83 million followers on Twitter. Uh, we know full well that he loves his Twitter account. He uses it for pretty much everything. It gives him control over the message. A few years ago, he famously shuttered the media relations department of Tesla because he wanted to control how that message got out. He felt that that wasn't the way to do it. And so... You know, basically, he, he wants to own that megaphone. He doesn't want to be subject to anyone else's rules. He's been very publicly fighting with Twitter's leadership for a number of years over how they run the company. He feels that they've been too tight on restrictions, that uh, you know they, they are hindering freedom of speech. And he wanted to loosen those shackles. And I guess he probably reached a point where he figured, well, if I can't Im- impose or encourage change from the outside, then guess what? I'm going to have to crack open my wallet and do it from the inside. And that is pretty much where he's ended up. He's gotten what he wants. The, you know, the big rich boy reached into his pockets, owns the megaphone now. Uh, and basically it is now or soon will be his playground to do as he wishes with. Now, depending on who you follow on Twitter, some people equated that with the apocalypse today and other people <laughs> thought it was a pretty cool idea. Uh, where do you see things changing and how fast and what kind of impact do you think he'll have on what we know the, the platform to be these days? Well, where we're at right now is Twitter is still a publicly traded company. It'll take a while for this process to play out. Right now, the board has agreed to be acquired by uh, Mr. Musk. They've agreed to the financial terms. Uh, and so essentially what happens now is it, it, it goes to shareholder approval. It goes to regulatory approval. They have to make sure that it doesn't violate uh, any anti-competition laws, antitrust, all that stuff. Uh, it, it has to be voted on by the shareholders. There's a shareholder meeting coming up at the end of May. Um, and you know, no one really is putting a date on it. They're saying that they expect the deal to close sometime in 2022, at which point then Mr. Musk would essentially be able to control his now privately held company, no longer subject to uh, the, the rules and regulations that all publicly traded companies have to adhere to. And once he does, he's made it pretty clear that you know he wants to open source the algorithm. He wants to remove a lot of the restrictions on, or they you know, call it moderation, um, on the platform that prevents people from saying or doing or gets their tweets uh, banned or their accounts suspended or, or them expelled from the platform if they, if they behave a certain way. He wants it to be anything goes. And depending on what side of that spectrum you happen to be on, if you know, you were in, you know, involved in Twitter in the early days. You remember when there were no restrictions, and it was known as a pretty toxic, tough place. Millions of people left the platform. Millions more never signed up in the first place because it was rife with abuse. Combined open architecture where nobody needs permission to connect with anyone else with no rules, no consequences, 
Uh, and it is the perfect uh, environment for cyberbullying, stalking, disinformation spreading. And uh, unfortunately, if you're sort of on that side of the equation uh, under Mr. Musk, that seems to be where we may be headed. I mean, that certainly raises questions because we we, are, we understand a lot more now just about about the about the impact of the toxicity of certain social media platforms. Um, is, is this something you think he's going to pursue? Is, it, there's been a lot of speculation about how he's going to pursue it because of how much he's talked about it personally. But now that he owns the company, you'd think that maybe now he spent $44 billion to buy it, that it might be in his best interest not to let it turn into a cesspool, right? I mean, yeah, it, it, is, it, it is his, right? Absolutely. It's a very different situation when you're on the outside screaming in versus when you're on the inside and you realize that, oh, you know, maybe I do have to behave like an adult. And I think that's probably what we're going to see. We're going to see a lot of what he had called for from the outside somewhat tamped down as the realities of owning a business like like Twitter uh, dawn on him. And so I think we probably will see some loosening of the shackles. I, I, I suspect open sourcing the algorithm would be an interesting thing to see because then you won't have malevolent actors trying to game the system. In fact, with the and, and there have been calls for all social media platforms to be, to be a little bit more forthcoming with that. So that may be something worth looking at. Um, also, you know, loosening some of the restrictions or at least making the imposition of those rules more consistent because in some cases people post something that is not objectionable yet the algorithm decides that they've crossed a line and suddenly they're banned whereas someone else posts white supremacist based content and for whatever reason it stays and so there has to be better enforcement uh and i think if it's more fair more balanced maybe that also is worth trying but i think you're right he will realize that he can't do everything that he said in the tweets that he has sent over the last six months because even though he said it's not about the money. It's about making sure that Twitter lives up to his, its potential. He didn't get to be a billionaire by, by ignoring business reality. And I think he is going to want to make sure or at least behave in a way that ensures that Twitter remains a going concern, a profitable growing business going forward. I was going to say, do you think that, that he has, given his track record, do you think he has what it takes to make, to bring Twitter forward because it feels like twitter's stalled a bit obviously it's used by certain people for certain things it's a very good forum if you're a journalist because there's a lot of journalists talking to each other politicians experts so on uh, but it feels like it's stalled a bit do you think elon musk will be able to, to bring it up a notch i've learned never to vote against uh, elon musk because just when you think that his back is against the wall he figures out a way to pull something out of the fire i mean think back to the origin story of spacex they were literally running on fumes down to their last, you know, you know, sort of, you know, puddle of money sitting in a bank account. And it was a, you know, fourth launch of the Falcon one. If it didn't succeed, they were done. They were toast and they were going to shut, you know, shut shop. And, and then somehow this thing succeeded. And of course, look where they are now, world's most successful private space launch company. Um, same thing with Tesla. That company has been written off for dead more times than I care to amount. But look at its stock price now. It's literally revolutionizing the electric vehicle industry and pushing the rest of the industry in a direction they didn't want to go until Elon Musk came along. So, you know, I don't vote against him. I think certainly the potential is there. I think he's probably going to find that running a social media company is very different than making EVs or building batteries or launching rockets. And so I think it's going to be a bit of a steeper hill for him to climb this time. I think he, he may be in a bit over his head, but also... 
he's kind of like the closest we have to the modern day version of a renaissance man so if anyone can figure it out or at least surround himself with people who can point him in the right direction he's done a very good job of that at spacex and tesla i would expect him to do the same thing at twitter uh, and i would expect to see major changes in leadership over the, the first few months of ownership to ensure that he's got the right team around him who can you know soften his his most crazy excesses uh, and allow him to capture some of his better ideas in a productive, constructive way. I've always thought an edit button Twitter would be a good idea. So maybe we'll finally get to see one. Uh, speaking of uphill battles, I think we are. Speaking of uphill battles, Carmi, I want to ask you about, I know you follow Netflix very closely. There's been a lot of talk about Netflix. I was away out of the country last week and I was reading about Netflix uh, abroad as well. Uh, we'll talk about that after this. A tough week for Netflix and what they have in mind to try to turn things around. Some interesting ideas. We'll be back with that. There we go. A little technical issue there. Now I'm on my phone talking to you, Carly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it makes me, it makes me time for the days of those old phones. I miss that exactly, northern telecom exactly. rotary. <laughs> yeah, tell me about um, I, I was I think, what did I, I, I didn't miss the busy signals. I certainly didn't miss uh, having to fight over the phone. That was the other big one back <laughs> in the day. Yeah, one line, three kids in my house. It was uh, not a happy time. I also grew up in Montreal, so we probably have lots to talk right. about. But uh I remember that well. Remember, like the busy signal. I remember hearing a busy signal just, uh, you know, a, a few weeks ago, and just thinking, "That sounds so odd. I haven't heard one in years." Like little pieces of our technological history, kind of get left behind, and we don't even realize that we've lost them until years later when we sort of we come back in contact with them. I also take pictures of of, uh, of payphones when I see them out in public because I figure oh, nice. this could be my last chance. <laughs> Yeah, I was saying there's one right down the street from me here in Victoria that uh, that, that people take pictures of. I've never, never seen anyone use it as a phone, but people take pictures of it a lot. <laughs> I um, love it. Uh, there you go. I'm, I'm glad. I'm glad you do the same thing. It's good to keep a memory of that stuff. I, I was going to ask you about Netflix because obviously some stuff going on there. They had a bad report last week, um, and now they're looking at some some sort of. They are looking at ways, I guess, to try to to up the bottom line, and including sort of ads and cracking down on sharing passwords, uh, some interesting stuff that will any of it work? Yeah, you can get away with a lot as long as you're still growing. Investors don't really care as long as the business is growing by, you know, double-digit percentages every quarter. They'll overlook a lot of the, the things that you don't clean up in the background because, well, growth, growth fixes everything. It fills in the cracks, raises the tide. Uh, but what's happening now is is Netflix we kind of suspected that eventually the party would end. It always does. There are only so many people in the world who, who will subscribe to these services. And at some point, you're going to run out of new people to subscribe to. And that's kind of where Netflix is now. The market is maturing. They had their quarterly uh, earnings results call, and they announced that they had lost 200,000 subscribers, which doesn't sound like a lot because 220 million people still subscribe to the service. So it feels like a drop in the bucket. But you know, it shows that the company is no longer growing. And then they freaked everyone out even more by saying, well, you think, think 200,000 is bad? Wait, next quarter, in the next three months, we're going to lose 2 million more and we're not going to say anything about what happens after that. So, of course, investors sold off the shares, lost a third of its value. It's lost two-thirds in the last six months. Uh, and, and the company now has to get serious about, you know, cleaning up. Because, for example, a lot of people share passwords. Of those 220 million people, they say, a hundred million households are sharing passwords. So rather than just allowing it to happen, they're going to start charging in certain countries in South America as a pilot program. But 
you know full well that that's coming here soon and that free ride is over. They're jacking up rates. If, if there aren't more of, of us, we're going to pay more. Uh, and, uh, and, and at some point, that sort of free experience, Netflix, which was kind of a cheap way to get access to lots of really cool content, those days are rapidly drawn to a close. And the Netflix that we knew for the last decade or so, not necessarily going to be the same company going forward, and it's going to cost us a little bit more. And, and I suppose there is this idea that, like Spotify, that there will be a, a version of it available with ads that might be a bit less expensive. Yeah, they've announced that like they're not going to force it on us. Basically, what they'll do is they'll add another tier. In other words, when you look at all the subscription options, there will be a premium one, which is no ads, and that's probably the most expensive choice. And then below that, there will be an ad-supported version that might be a few bucks a month cheaper. So if you're willing to put up with ads, then you'll save a few bucks a month. Of course, the devil is in the details. How will they deliver those ads? Will it be annoying? Will it be a constant thing? Or will it just be kind of seamless? We don't really know that yet. They've just said that they're investigating a tier. But the good news here, at least for now, is it's going to be our choice to decide what, you know, how much we want to spend for the privilege of going ad-free. But I think the rest of the industry, Netflix is doing this now, but look at Spotify, look at uh, HBO Max, look at all the other subscription-based services. And I think at some point, they're all going to have to reach that same point. We're going to have to decide sort of where we want to fall on that continuum because, uh, you know, if you want this industry to be sustainable, uh, there's going to have to be a balance and they just can't make all of their money from subscription revenue. Ads are going to have to play a role in that too. Carmel, that'd be always interesting to speak to you about these things. And uh, yeah, you'll have to share some of those payphone photos with us uh, as we talk about this stuff on National Phone Day. Thanks so much for your Absolutely time. Absolutely will. Thanks so much, Ben. Really appreciate it.